0: There's a story told of a man who applied for work at a logging company. The foreman simply asked him, well, can you fell a tree with an axe? So the the man went over, picked up an axe, and yes, proved that he could chop a tree down just like an old pro. He was hired. That was on a Friday. On Monday, he shows up to work, and he outdid everyone else in the crew, But each day after Monday, he was getting slower and slower. He's swinging that axe with all of his muscles. He's doing everything he can, hitting the tree, repeating it. It just didn't work as well as the day he was hired or his first day on the job. And finally, he sat down in frustration, laid his axe down, and he was wondering, what's wrong with me? What's happened? Why am I slowing down? Why can't I keep up? I don't know what's happening. So the foreman came over and said, I'll tell you exactly what's happening. He said, you have been busy all week doing the things that a logger does. So focused on chopping the trees, you have forgotten the very basics of what we do. You lost the big picture because you have forgotten to sharpen your axe. And every day it gets duller and duller to where now it doesn't work at all. Here is a picture of a man who is doing what he wanted to do for his living, doing what he could do, but he lost sight of a big picture. Folks, it doesn't take long to dull a tree, an axe cutting trees over and over again every day. He lost sight and even in the things of the spirit it's very easy for us to lose sight of what's really important we we walk away from a worship service and we deem how wonderful and how meaningful it was judging it by how well the songs went did we actually sing songs we knew did we sing the type of songs we like we We talk about how good it was because the preacher wasn't so long-winded this week, and we got out early. We talk about stories he may have told. There are a hundred different ways that people judge whether or not a worship service is really meaningful. And sometimes those hundred ways don't deal with what's most important. Have we honored God today? Having been in this place, are we drawn closer to his side and his will? Those are the questions, the big pictures we should be asking. Now, I'll admit to you, through the formative years of my life as a Christian, I lost sight of a lot of big things. In fact, I shared with you, I came to faith at the age of eight. And then for the next seven years, uh, my family moved every year. And along that process, we didn't get... Seriously involved in church, and it, it and yeah, we we said blessings for meals. Uh, occasionally, I would think about God. Occasionally, I would go to church with friends, but I lost sight of the big picture. And then, uh, really, at the age of right at fourteen, going into fifteen, God got a hold of my family, and uh, we got right in where we needed to be. And thankfully. During those formative years, when I wasn't paying attention to God, He was paying attention to me. And He was moving in my life in ways I couldn't imagine. And so He began speaking to my heart and bringing me to the place where I wanted to know who I was in God and what He wanted for me. And today we're going to take a look at a well-known passage of Scripture. And Natalie has already read for you. It's Matthew 26. Verses 26 through 30. And as you stand, uh, as we get ready to hear the word of the Lord, uh, I, I want you to to listen carefully, yes. Listen with your heart, with your ears. Open up and, and ask the Lord to let me get this. And hear the word of the Lord. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is just one of several texts that give us the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's found in the Synoptic Gospels. It's found in the book of 1 Corinthians. And and, uh, in John, it is not specifically mentioned. Uh, Don't be so concerned about that. By the time John wrote his book, This this ordinance was well-established and probably why he didn't focus there. Instead, John focused on things leading up to the Lord's Supper that other texts don't give us. I believe every time we approach the Lord's Supper, we should approach receiving it with a comprehensive view of this ordinance. We need to be looking at the big picture all of the time. Now, through much of my life, I experienced the Lord's Supper at the end of a service, the last five to ten minutes of the service. Nothing else was connected. And years ago, a man by the name of Donald Potts, one of my professors, put it on my heart in my 20s that our attention needs to be on what the Lord's Supper is about throughout an entire service. We need to be looking at the big picture. You see, it's a shame... No matter what we're doing in worship, no matter what we're covering, what passages of Scripture, it's a shame if we come to an act of worship without full attention. That's one of the reasons I encourage that moment of silence at the beginning to help us focus. Now, this act, this ordinance, an ordinance is a command of Christ. It is only, it is one of only two that he gave his church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And this ordinance deserves our full attention our desire to understand what it meant, what it means now, and forevermore within the body of Christ. But how do we get the big picture? How do we move from, well, it's Lord's Supper time again, let's go ahead and get through. How do we do that? Well, today we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper. And to help us understand the picture, we're going to be looking at it through some variables. And those variables all have to do with time. And these variables of time you're very familiar with. We're going to be looking at the supper in terms of its past, the present, and the future. Past, present, and future when we come to the Lord's table. Each one extremely important. Each one shaping our understanding. Each one helping us to make sure that this is not just a ritual we go through. But an act of worship. And we'll open up with the first variable. The Lord's Supper points to a past event. Now, we know this. In fact, this is usually where we pay all of our attention. The Lord's Supper points to a past event. Now, what I mean by that is that Jesus used the elements of the Supper to point to his coming act of atonement. Did you hear his words? at the end of what was a Passover meal, he takes bread and he says, this bread is my body. He takes a cup and with the wine of Passover, he says, this cup is the blood, the price for forgiveness of sin. And he was letting his disciples know one more time that he was about to sacrifice himself. Now, this was not a new topic for him. They were once having an argument among themselves. They had no idea Jesus is listening in. And they're saying, well, which one of us is most important? And he looks at them and says, you don't understand what it means to be important in the kingdom of all. The Son of Man come not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. On several occasions, he told them, I am going to die for you and they never wanted to hear it. They didn't want that. That's not what they thought Messiah was coming to do. And so they just blocked their ears. You know the expression in one ear and out the other? They weren't allowing it to go in the first ear to begin with. They just were not listening. And one more time he's telling him I'm about to die for you. And the overwhelming sense on that first Lord's Supper is sorrow and pain and grief and shock, and they just don't want to understand. He was supposed to drive Rome out. He was supposed to set up the kingdom. And they didn't want to hear any of this talk about his death. It wasn't what they wanted. But it's a key element of the supper. It's what gives meaning to the elements themselves. The willingness of Jesus to give his body, the willingness of Jesus to shed his blood for specifically the forgiveness of sins was crucially important to the body of Christ. And every time we come to this table, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. Now, there are a lot of people who don't like it when we talk about blood. One of the accusations about uh, the Christian life on the behalf of those who really don't understand it, you've got a bloody religion. And I don't like this talk of sacrifice. It's not right. It's not fair. No man should have to pay the price for other people. And they reject it. There are those who say it's bloody. It's terrible. We don't want to cons- consider that. God would not kill his son, and they reject it. In a sermon on the atonement, Will Anderson kind of pointed at the hypocrisy of all of those who say, we don't like this idea of someone dying. He said, food demonstrates how everyone benefits from a form of atonement, whether they acknowledge it or not. Now, hold on and and listen carefully. Everything we eat, whether plant or animal, was once alive. And my vegan friends need to pay attention. Everything we eat was once alive. It had to be plucked from the tree, pulled from the earth, or slaughtered in order to sustain you. And he said, every meal is a testament to the fact that others' things must die for you to live. Now, most people, he said, who enjoy a juicy burger or steak never think about the animal who made the sacrifice. It was not a willing sacrifice, I guarantee you. We don't think about the slaughterhouse. We put it out of our mind. We just want to enjoy the meal. So we reap the benefits of a sacrifice without considering the cost. And he suggested it's hypocritical for someone to say, we don't like atonement when every time, the fact that you're able to survive costs the life of something. Now, you may argue it's a different thing to kill an animal than another entirely for God to sacrifice his son. And he points out, it is true the cross is horrific, and yet Christ willingly embraced it which should fill us with trembling and humility, not disgust. Something stirs our souls when we watch someone willingly die for another. It moves and breaks us simultaneously. This week I watched again a video of a young boy, a little boy, uh, who threw himself in front of his sister, who was about to be attacked by a snarling dog. And the boy was mauled. When his father was interviewed, he asked him, Why did you do it? And this is a little kid, about eight years old, nine years old, tops. He said, if somebody was going to die, I wanted it to be me. <laughs> and daddy can't get through it, and I'm not sure I'll make it through, so I'm going to wrap it up. Those stories move us when somebody actually dies. And, and, and he asks a question, why? Because our souls were formed by a creator who sacrificed himself for us. We may deny atonement with our heads, but our hearts can't be fooled. And with this ordinance, I believe we must make a conscious decision to greatly, gratefully focus on our Lord's atoning work. This is part of the supper. Now, it hurts us to think, That Jesus had to die for us the brutality of the cross is terrible to think about and to realize the only reason he had to die that death was for you and me and we don't like that but let's not pull away from it because it's hard to consider let's not pull away from it because it's too terrible Let's not pull away from it because it makes us feel guilty. Instead, let's look that the Son of Man, when he said, this is my body and my blood, I'm giving for you. Folks, when we think about it, it's a time to rejoice, a time to be thankful, a time to walk in wonder about how much God loved us. And so yes, when we take this, we are brought to the cross and remember his death. We are brought to an act of atonement because a holy God could not simply ignore sin. But let's rejoice while we do it. Now that's the past. And that's what we tend to focus on when we take the Lord's Supper, that he died for me. But let's take a look at the future, uh, the present. The Lord's Supper suggests a present reality. The Lord's Supper suggests a present reality. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's take a look at the words Jesus spoke. When he's giving this first initial act of Lord's Supper, Jesus told the disciples that they were all they all were to drink from the cup. Now that helps them see every one of you here. And one of the gospels let us know by this time Judas has already gone away to do his deed. I want all of you to participate. He didn't look and say, "Peter, this is for you. John, this is for you." No, he says, "This is for all of you." What may not be as obvious. When he talked about the bread, this bread is my body, take and eat. That's an imperative, a command. But in the original language, it is a second person plural command. In other words, you could legitimately translate this, all of you take and eat. So both elements, Jesus is focusing on, focusing on the corporate reality. Now, what gave him a right to do this? Well, first of all, at the Passover, Jesus was essentially acting as the head of the household. This little group of men were, they, they were family, brought together by the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the head of the household was the one who oversaw the Passover event. Now, this isn't just any father talking to his children and his wife. This is the king of kings, lord of lords, veiled in flesh, yes, but he is God, very God, and as head of the household, he drew these elements of a meal that was thankful and grateful for God's deliverance of Israel way back in Egypt, and he changed the meaning for all time. With these words of institution, he is telling his followers this meal is now not talking about exodus. I'm telling you about an a, a act of deliverance that's about to happen that is the greatest deliverance ever offered. And in doing so, he says, We're, I'm having you observe this together with each other. Now, let's take a look at why do I call this a present reality? I focused on what he said, but let's look at what it means for you and me. The Lord's Supper brings us to a beautiful act of communion with each other right now. Yes, it is communion with our Lord. We are thankful. We are telling him, thank you for dying for us, for giving us life through the sacrifice you made. But it is also something we do together. Now, Paul expanded this. And his covering of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, which is probably the oldest written account uh, of the Lord's Supper. We believe that Paul actually wrote that letter before the Gospels were written. In verses 24 and 25, he gives us words we're very familiar with. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is in the covenant of my blood. Uh, Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, the word you, here is the plural form of you. Forgive me just a moment, but if Jesus, the Cotton Patch Gospel, if you ever get a chance to read it, it's a wonderful uh, look. And what if Jesus came to America when he first shows up and it's in the South? In that case, Jesus would say, y'all drink, y'all eat. Unfortunately, the word you doesn't distinguish. Only context will tell you whether it's one you or two. The pronouns are plural. And it indicates something done together. But Paul expands it even further. The idea of being together is expanded. When Paul tells a church decades after the sacrifice of Christ in 1126, "...for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Folks, that opens it to let us know this was never meant for just the 12. This was never meant for the apostles. It was meant for the body of Christ. And whenever you, we understand First Corinthians is speaking to our hearts. Whenever you, whenever we observe it, we are telling the Lord's death until he comes. Now, who are we telling I've never really dealt with this aspect here. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Who is here today? Is the world here? No. Most everybody in our midst today are professing Christians. Who are we proclaiming to each other? Remember that our Lord gave himself for us. Remember that our Lord gave himself for us, the body of Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are taking it as a family. And it was always meant to be done among brothers and sisters. Now, I've got some Baptist relatives in the big umbrella of Baptists that won't like what I'm about to say, but I don't think the number of people uh, the number of participants, has ever been an issue. Whether this is being done in a mega church, 5,000 people about to take the Lord's Supper, or a little country church uh, that, that has been family, and, and the family's dying out, so they may have 10, 5, 10 people gathered, or even, and this is where my brothers would dis- disagree with me, I'm going back to what Jesus said when he's talking about prayer. Whenever two or three of you are gathered, I'm in your midst. If it's just two or three people, it's done together as members of the body of Christ. The fact that it belongs to the body, to us, is what is important here. I need you to hear me carefully. Private communion cannot take place. What do I mean by that? This week I'm feeling a little bit holy and I think I want to get close to God so I get a cracker and some grape juice and take it in the quiet of my apartment all alone. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's cracker and juice. What makes this important is when brothers and sisters in the Lord come together, again, however many that may be, and observe it together because it was always meant about us. And when we do this, we need to acknowledge that there is something incredibly wonderful and magnificent and tremendous about this event. So we must seek to always embrace this ordinance in a meaningful act together. Because together we remember what Christ has done and what he continues to do for us. Together we honor Christ in the supper and experience True corporate worship. If we're really focused on what we're doing, this is an act of worship. And together we can celebrate the joy this act can bring. I need you to hold on to your horses because I'm about to share with you a description that comes from Lee Eckloff in a sermon. The sinner's feast. What should be the celebrative uh, act of communion, Side of communion. And I warn you, it's going to sound a little strange to your ears. But I almost did a little jig in my study when I read it. This table is different. This table of the Lord isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sinners celebrate being found. Maybe some morning, instead of solemnly passing these trays, We should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who should no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds. But I really love this. Maybe we should hold our little cups high to toast Lost sisters who have been found, and dead brothers who are alive. That may seem extreme to you. I know a debt preacher shouldn't mention the word dance, but that you know the the reality is this is an act of joy. When we come together, there is a somber side to this when we realize our sin. Needed the cost of his life, but it is a time of joy and celebration. And that can be seen when we take and when we enjoy our Lord and when we sing songs of praise and when we remember what he's done and together we're, we're encouraging each other. There should always be an element of joy because our present reality is this belongs to the body of Christ and this is a family meal and this particular family meal should not be filled with the drama that is so often seen in family get-togethers. This should be joy. And in case you're not, you're still not quite sure that I'm right on that note, I bring us to our final variable. The Lord's Supper offers a future hope. The Lord's Supper offers a future hope. Now, I want you to keep in mind, again, the disciples are not hearing much of what he has to say. They're so overwhelmed with grief. They're still not quite getting it. It's going to take the resurrection, and it's going to take Pentecost before the body of Christ truly embraces all the, the wonder of this meal. But in the midst of this meal... Jesus shared a brief promise of a future time of communion he would share with his followers. He was leaving. Yes, that much is true. He made it clear, and there was much sorrow involved. But did you catch when I read the text? The grand word of hope. It's not much. Jesus says, I'm not going to be drinking this wine anymore. Until, and that's where the hope came in, until we drink it together in my Father's kingdom. They were going to have a time of celebration that was going to do away with sorrow forever. They weren't ready to hear it then, but as they remembered the story and they remembered the words, they said, now we know what he's talking about. There's going to be a time they would do their celebrating in the very kingdom of the Father in all of its glory and all of its wonder. They missed it then. But then it became part of their hope and understanding. But wait a minute. He said, we will share it again. We will share it. And when we take the bread and cup, we realize there is a time when we will be gathered to an even greater meal. As important as this meal is, this act is, there's something even greater coming. I don't often have you do this, but I'm going to want you to stand for the next reading of the text that I'm going to share with you. Simply because, well, one of the reasons, part of it gave birth to Handel's Messiah, and we stand when we, look at Handel's Messiah. Uh, But I want you to stand because folks, this is a standing passage of scripture. This is a glory, hallelujah, amen passage of scripture. And I want you to hear it carefully. We're going to be looking at Revelations 19, 6 through 9, and then Revelation 21, 9. So hear the word of the Lord. And understand why I'm having you stand right now. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud, the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her where fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen. And then in twenty-one nine, the angel says, and I'm about to show you the bride. And he said, one of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, then let me tell you what he saw. You may be seated now. When he says, here's the bride, John was given a picture of, of the new Jerusalem. With all of its manifestations of wonder and amazement. And and we get caught up in all those images. Uh, the idea of a pearl big as a city gate. The idea of a street of gold. As though it were transparent glass. The glory awaiting us in heaven is amazing. But the point that John was seeing This new Jerusalem is comprised of all of the redeemed from all of the ages. So who's going to get invited to that last great celebration supper meal? All of us who name Christ as Lord and Savior. We are going to be gathered with everyone. Now, when I say this, this is not hyperbole. This is not exaggeration. I don't care if my mansion is a shotgun shanty. The road of heaven could be dirt for all I care. Something different makes it heaven. There was a a story written called The Happiness of Heaven, a short story that talked about a kind-hearted king while making a, a hunting trip into the forest. He found a blind orphan boy living in the forest on his own, barely able to survive. He took the boy home, adopted him as his own son. Uh, The king gave his blind son the finest education and training that could be bought. And the blind son loved this father dearly and was grateful for everything that he had given him. Well, the story goes on. A, A doctor was actually able to perform a surgery that restored this Man, young man's sight for the first time in his life as an adult he could see what had happened to him since those days in the forest the royal prince knew that he had been blessed with fine food fragrant gardens and lovely music but when he regained his sight he didn't want to look at the wealth of the kingdom he wanted to gaze on the face of the father who saved him, adopted him, and loved him. Fred Marks said of this story, we'll do the same thing in heaven. We were all poor, blind, wretched orphans, and the king of kings has adopted us into his family. When we arrive in heaven, our faith finally turns to sight. We aren't going to be looking for pearly gates, streets of gold, We will only have eyes to look upon the one who has redeemed us. Mark said, my favorite promise is found in Revelation 2, verses 3 and 4. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The greatest thing about heaven is that we, we'll see the lord every time we partake of the table of the lord if we're paying attention to what's going on here every time we're looking forward to a day when salvation will be fully known to the day we will see jesus face to face and so we must always look forward in expectancy to the time when this ordinance will be no longer necessary. And that's hard for me to say. Because the vast majority of my time on this earth, this meal has been an important part of my life. And it's hard to imagine there'll come a day we will never celebrate the Lord's Supper again. But think about it. We don't have to. There's coming a day we won't have to be reminded of Jesus. We will be with him. There won't be a time when we will have to worry we might not have enough people to observe the meal. No, every child of God through every age is gathered around the throne. We will be with him forever and ever in a place of pure worship and a celebration. So let's take the elements and let us thoroughly give our joyful gratitude to the God who saves us. And let us cry out with the saints throughout the ages, Come, Lord Jesus. How do we get the big picture of the Lord's Supper? We remember that it points to the past actions of Jesus Christ, death, and resurrection. The Lord's Supper suggests our present reality. We are not only having a moment of communion with our God, but with each other, drawn together as the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is pointing us to a future hope, fulfilled to be with our Lord and King forever.